Any information that is discussed in this podcast is not professional medical advice, but rather the opinion of the host and their guests. If you wish to alter yours or someone else's diabetes regime, as always, seek professional medical advice. Welcome back to the Immune Kamikaze podcast, a podcast about diabetes. In this episode, I talk to type 1 diabetic Neil McLagan from Perth in Western Australia. Not only does Neil have type 1 diabetes, Neil has Hashimoto's hypothyroidism and celiac disease symptoms, which we discuss at length in the episode. Type 1 diabetes itself is an extremely complex and high-maintenance disease, but to couple that with hypothyroidism and celiac disease, I can only imagine how tough that must be. But Neil's positivity and determination to manage all three conditions is extraordinary. Neil and I discuss his diagnosis story with type 1 diabetes and its impact on his life when he was 17. Being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a teenager adds to the already challenging period in one's life and we discuss Neil's struggles with adapting to the diagnosis. We also discuss alcohol and its impact on diabetes, especially in the teenage and younger years. Neil has a keen interest on nutrition and getting the most out of his body as a sufferer of multiple conditions. We discuss several interesting topics such as low-carbohydrate diets, the consumption of dairy, and benefits of reducing certain food groups and fueling your body from ketones, not to be confused with ketoacidosis. In 2018, Neil cycled unsupported from Perth to Sydney on his bicycle, totaling 4,011 kilometres in 20 days. Neil averaged nine hours on the bike each day and some days cycled in excess of 250 kilometres. The ride was gruelling as Neil suffered both mental and physical exhaustion and incurred several injuries along the way. However, Neil's determination kept him going until he reached the end and demonstrating nothing will stop you from achieving your dreams and goals if you put your mind to it. Neil and I discussed the motivation for the ride and how he raised over $19,000 for the Telethon Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre. Neil and I discussed the topic of access of insulin as Neil is raising money for Insulin for Life Global via his Everesting attempt, which aims to provide insulin for diabetics in developing nations. The Everesting Challenge is a cycling challenge where you pick any hill and repeatedly ride said hill to the height of Everest, which is 8,848 metres in a single activity. No small feat indeed. Neil is a top bloke and was completely open to discuss the highs and lows with living with three demanding chronic conditions. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to Neil and I'm sure you'll find his positivity and can-do attitude infectious. One of the best parts of hosting this podcast is being connected with people like Neil. Each guest of the podcast I've learnt from, and I hope as a guest you're able to take something away from each episode also, specifically knowing that you're not alone and there's many more of us suffering with the same condition. Let Neil's story encourage you and remind you that if you put your mind to it, you too can achieve greatness even as a type 1 diabetic. If you like what you hear and are keen to support the Immune Kamikaze podcast, please remember to give the Immune Kamikaze podcast a review on iTunes and subscribe to the Immune Kamikaze Facebook and Instagram pages. We really appreciate your support. Without further delay, here is the episode.
All righty, mate. Well, if you don't mind, let's start with uh, your diagnosis with type 1 diabetes. What what age were you when you got type 1 diabetes and, and how did you take that diagnosis? Yeah, so look, I was 17 and um, I had obviously been, uh, you know, understatement to say a little bit unwell for a period of time. Um, and I, I obviously lost a lot of weight and, and had all the sort of trademark uh, symptoms that I didn't know myself what was going on. And um, look, I, I worked in the local fast food, the local Maccas, uh, you know, as most teens or many teens do at that, at that time of their life. Yeah, um, sure. And I remember looking at the drive-through monitor where people's orders come up, and I my vision had gone that blurry uh, that I couldn't read it, um, and I and I couldn't sort of I, I really couldn't see the vision for me was a big thing, and the the drinking bucket loads of anything I could get my hands on, running to the loo every five seconds, um, you know, losing a lot of weight, and I was right. involved in a holder. So our, our McDonald's got uh, got held up um, an early morning uh, early morning hold up, and I was actually believe it or not the last person left in the store with this guy, right. um, you know, who was who was yielding a weapon, <laughs> which I couldn't hardly see him. Right. Um, but I basically, you know, did did whatever you know I was probably expected to by him, and give him give him the loose change and whatever he got away with. Um, but it was the police who asked me, you know, to identify him, and I could barely identify him because I couldn't see. And, and obviously, I was very, very unwell at this point. But I got sent for a debriefing, um, and obviously a medical checkup. So the employer wanted to do the right thing. And um, yeah, I've, I've, my mum's obviously been on at me for a while at this point to, to go and get a, a checkup because mum's know when something is wrong above all else. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of went and, and got some blood tests and, and gone home that night. And uh, my mum got a call from the lab at midnight um, and suggesting getting Neil to a doctor ASAP because his blood glucose is, I think, 54 or something to that effect. And they don't normally give blood glucose results over the phone, as I'm sure you probably know. Uh, uh, yeah, 54. Way, way back then, yeah. Way back then, they just, you know, they just said get get him to a doctor right away in the morning, and I think I'd, I'd barely made it in the door to the doctor's surgery and collapsed, and uh, that right, was you're, my diagnosis. Right, you're lucky to, um, yeah, you're lucky to get through that. Like 54, like for the folks that don't know, the, the non-diabetics, like you're supposed to be, you know, around 5.5, like maybe four yeah. to eight, but yeah, 54 astronomically high. Um, you know, and I felt very unwell, and, and the doctors did say that you know I probably had twelve to twenty-four hours. And I might have uh, hit, hit coma stage, um, so I was fairly lucky. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it was uh, quite quite the interesting sort of lead up into into actually getting to the doctors and finding out. Yeah, um, gee, it's it's inter- yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I mean, I was diagnosed when I was eleven, and I try pretty hard to sort of think back to you know what my symptoms were like and you know sure I can think I was, I was quite thirsty I was losing a lot of weight and like yourself mate I, I do remember the vision was starting to go quite blurry but yeah. I think it sort of happened like there was the symptoms and maybe they were coming on over maybe one or two weeks and then all of a sudden it was just like whack all these 
symptoms just started coming on thick and fast. Um, yeah. Is that sort of how it happened for you? I found the last probably couple of weeks was the, was the fastest part of the, the sort of where my health really deteriorated. Um, I remember, you know, my, my pants being really loose and, uh, yeah, definitely the, the sort of needing to go to the loo and the, the constant uh, thirst. The thirst was like no other. Um, and, and probably the last few days was my vision was really bad. And I'd only just got my driver's license, and I, you know, trying to, to, to drive even. And I, I just thought to myself, why are all these things kind of happening? Like, you know, I didn't kind of join the dots and think that it was all related to one thing. I thought I had all of these separate issues uh, sort of gathering uh, steam. And then, yeah, sure enough, it was, uh, was type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think is maybe is a generalisation as well, but maybe as being a bloke, we tend to sort of ah, should be right, mate. You know, like the Australian way. You know, just push through it. It'll, you know, you'll get better. And um, yeah, I don't know if that was the case for you, but I, you know, going back to it, I was eleven. You know, I was. I think that was the case for me as well. Like I used to, I was telling mum, no, nah, mum, it's fine. You know, we'll be right. But yeah. um. Again, yeah. she was quite insistent that we go to the doctor and get it sorted out, and you know, she was right. Yeah, and that—that's exactly it. You know, my mum had said for a while we we really should take it to a doctor because I'm sure there's something not right with you. I'm sure there's you know, there's definitely something not 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 right. Um, and and mum's as I said, no. But I think yeah, just being being at that age, um, you know, I was always reluctant to go to a doctor, and I'd probably. You know, I'd been diagnosed with it with, with a thyroid a few years before, and no one ever thought, uh, you know, sort of to check because obviously that's an autoimmune trigger as well. Um, but yeah, yeah sure, just end up end up going down that road with type one. It's an interesting point. Um, it was something I was going to sort of raise a bit later on, but let's let's talk about it now. So you, yeah, diagnosed with it's called Hashimoto's hyperthyroidism. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was a couple so, of years before. And you're also a celiac, or you've got celiac disease as well. When did you get diagnosed with celiac disease? Okay, so the celiac is kind of, it's, it's never been a sort of, uh, gone down into a formal, formal diagnosis. Um, okay. I went, I, I sort of in the last uh, early 30s, I really developed a really chronic sort of, my, my stomach issues got a lot worse. And I found, uh, you know, irritable bowel and sort of really getting inflamed with a lot of bread. And I, I was brought up on a lot of wheat bits and bread and that kind of thing, um, a lot of cereals. Eliminated them. Went down, uh, you know, went through a journey with uh, with going going on to a uh, low carbohydrate diet and eliminated a lot of grains and 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 processed foods and, and okay. you know went to the doctor and, and, and they said, well, look, you've got both the genetic markers for celiac. Um, so I got, the, I got those, those tests done um, and eliminated all the grains and, and gluten predominantly and the symptoms went away. So it was, it was pretty well a very, very safe to say uh, situation that, yeah, sure. um, that, you know, perhaps it was a, uh, a celiac. But, but it's very common. It, it is very common you know, if you've got one autoimmune condition, to have to have one or two, or or some people have three or four. It is, isn't it? Like I've I've just um, there's a couple of people in the diabetes group 
uh, where I live, and um, you know they've a couple of a couple of them have got multiple of the autoimmune uh, conditions. I think for me, yeah. like I've met a few people now with type one diabetes and celiac, and I just think, you know, not only if you've got this, you know, disease that's bloody tough to deal with at times, you've then got to be selective about what you can eat, like you know. Yeah. With diabetes, like really, technically we can eat whatever we want. We've just got to take the adequate, or sorry, the the corresponding insulin amount for yeah. it. But to be a celiac as well, like, I mean, I love a sandwich for lunch. Like, you know, you've it got is. to be really careful about that. And the interesting thing is, you know, I mean, there's also what I find it's, it's very common to have uh, leaky gut symptoms and and food sensitivities as well uh, with autoimmune and, and the thyroid, underactive thyroid can really cause some, some gut and bowel issues. So yeah, it's a whole sure. mixed bag and it's very different for for everyone. You know, I've, I've especially learned on my journey that no two human beings are the same um, and, and particularly with type 1 diabetes. Um, you know, it can be a case of cause and effect, uh, but, but then... There are different foods that we all respond to differently. So it's a very individual and diverse um, system, you like, if, if, if I can call it that, the, the, the human body. And it, it blows my mind that, you know, we can all have very different um, situations, certainly not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're actually just making me think a lot because I've um, I've had two gastroscopies because I had some, uh, well, I was becoming symptomatic, like I was having the celiac disease symptoms, um, but they've they've tested me a, a bunch of times. I've had blood tests. I've had I've had this test called the short synactin. Like I've had a whole range of tests and two gastroscopies. Like I said, and I, they still think that I'm not celiac. And I eat, I eat quite a lot of bread, and it seems to be okay. But every now and again, I seem to have this gut sensitivity, and um, yeah, it's sort of just mirroring what you're saying. Like it, yeah, maybe there is. I'm not celiac, but I do need to be a little bit selective, maybe. Yeah, and and it can be one of those things, you know. I mean, I on and off have flare ups of all different different types of things and I know that you know I I know without any kind of formal diagnosis you know that if I have too much dairy for instance I I struggle um, you know the inflammation can build up I know if I've had high blood glucose levels for a few days it can make me sensitive to a whole bunch of foods and and there's definitely I think you know, it's been well documented that that blood glucose fluctuation can cause um, you know, leaky gut that can really punch holes in that gut lining and, and leave us exposed again to to different uh, food sensitivities. So it's, it's never clear cut and it's never the same for every person. But, you know, I've, I've started to understand now what groups of foods agree with me, which ones don't, uh, when I'm going to struggle, you know, if I've had a lot of high, high blood glucose events, I know that, you know, it's it will definitely cause some inflammation there. But it's it's such an un, untapped science at the moment. Like the, the, the whole gut science thing is still so new. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Like I've, I've um, I don't know if you've heard of Michael Mosley. Like he's done, some, yeah, he's done some really interesting stuff. Like um, he, he's done that doco on um, gut, Microbiota. I, yeah. I, I can't pronounce it properly, but I've also 
he's put another book out just recently about fasting. And uh, yeah. I was sort of reading the summary of that just the other day. And like, I suppose it makes sense. Like back thousands of years ago, like, you know, we didn't go to the supermarket and buy a whole bunch of food. Like we sort of, you know, we sort of would work and like in groups and find that food and maybe hunt for that yeah. food. So there would be periods of time where we would fast when we couldn't find something. And, and he and this other uh, doctor, I think, or scientist was of the opinion that like we're a lot healthier from, you know, periodic fastings, which I found was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, and, and, and one thing I learned through the whole low-carbohydrate journey was the body is very well equipped uh, for famine. So the body's very well equipped for for surviving through periods of, of where food just wasn't readily available. Um, you know, we're, we're able to survive in states of, you know, nutritional ketosis and, and ketones themselves are a fuel. Um, not to be confused with, with, with diabetic ketoacidosis, two entirely separate things, which, which I've, I've had a lot of discussions with people over. But, yeah, I, you know, periods of fasting um, can really benefit some people. Yeah, uh, You know, some people it doesn't work as well for, and, and it's, it's one of those things, again, that it's a very new science. Um, I think we're still coming to understand how a lot of that works. You know, I can see why having a break from certain foods, uh, particularly if they're foods that, that can cause some inflammation in some people, uh, could really benefit. You know, you can really re- regenerate and replenish a whole bunch of cells that, that, that might become, in, you know, kind of inflamed before that. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned dairy before. Um, yeah. And um, it's something that my wife and I have sort of not – cut out of our diet like we still eat a bit of cheese and we'll you know we'll have if i have a coffee with milk in it occasionally but i've found that just sort of reducing the amount of dairy in my diet like i get less bloating and i feel you know i get a bit crampy in the gut um and i definitely feel a bit better maybe it's just because i'm a diabetic or maybe i don't know maybe i'm just better for it just generally but yeah i feel just just reducing the amount of dairy is has been a, a positive thing for me I'm the same. I, I haven't cut dairy completely from the team. I'll um I'll probably have, you know, the same as yourself. I'll have the odd coffee with with dairy in it. I still like a bit of dark chocolate, which obviously has some milk solids in it. Um, and I, I find that if I have too much dairy, the knock-on effect is I'm more sensitive to other foods than that I, I ordinarily wouldn't be so sensitive to, and I can really feel it in. Just how my body responds to things, how I recover from exercise, how I how I feel generally, and, and really in the gut. That's that's where I notice it the most. How how I feel in the stomach, stomach cramping and bloating. So yeah, yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. All right, mate. So this conversation is definitely taking an interesting sort of direction. It's great, <laughs> mate. I could talk about this stuff all day. It's really. <laughs> It's one of those things that I always say to people, you, 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 you discover, you know, obviously having type one's not ideal, but I find it makes, it, it leads many of us down this sort of science trail where we, you know, it, knowledge it is just, there's the wealth of knowledge out there. I yeah, love, it does. Getting into it. It's interesting because like you're trying to work out like, why did this happen to me? Like, um, and, and also like if you're, 
I don't know if you're interested in your well-being or if you're interested in in, in sports like you and myself are. You know, trying to get yeah. the best out of your body with a chronic illness as well. That's something that sort of, for me, catalyzed me trying to get into science a bit more and, yeah. But yeah. Some, something I wouldn't mind coming back to, which we talked about before, obviously um, to manage type 1 diabetes, you take insulin. Obviously, to sort of manage celiac, you, you, you watch your diet and you reduce gluten or, or remove it completely. Yeah. What about Hashimoto's? Like, what do you have to do to manage that condition? It's an interesting one. The thyroid can be largely, like I've spent a lot of my life not really paying attention to it. Um, I, okay. I got told, you know, I got diagnosed with that first. So I was 14 years old when I got diagnosed with, with underactive thyroid um, and the only family history we have of autoimmune is that my mum has has Hashimoto's also. So okay. she's under active thyroid as well. And she had that for probably 10 years before I was diagnosed. And, you know, I was told to take this tablet, which is, is like a T4 um, hormone uh, replacement. So that's obviously what, that's like the latent hormone. It's kind of, your thyroid spits out the T4 hormone and it sits in, in it. your body can't use that. It, it, it circulates in the bloodstream and on an as-needed basis, your body converts it to T3, um, which is what your body then uses. And it's okay. kind of like a, it's a metabolic hormone. Um, and I went my whole life just taking this T4 tablet, not really questioning any 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 kind of, how I felt, you know, not really paying attention to it. I was more focused on type 1. But type 1 is such a labour-intensive, you know, as you know yourself, it's such a labour-intensive condition to manage that you can easily just be really dialed into that all the time and yeah. not look at these other, these other aspects of health. Um, and it wasn't until probably the last few years that I really started to notice that I still have a whole bunch of these thyroid symptoms. I still live with them. The, the dry skin, the, the always feeling cold, the, the quite, uh, you know, kind of sleepy, um, you know, you can get quite brittle nails and all of, all of the symptoms were still kind of very subtly there in the background and the gut health is another one. Um, so, you know, I kind of started getting some tests run again and, and noticed that despite having adequate levels of T4 and, and my, my TSH or the, the thyroid stimulating hormone was still in normal range, I actually had a very uh, a low or borderline low um, free T3. So it meant my body might have had a conversion issue. So okay. although I had the right level of T4 floating around, I had a problem converting it to T3. So my body was still you know, by definition, suffering from hypothyroid symptoms. Right. So my endocrinologist who, uh, you know, he's, he's been fantastic. He's very proactive and, and we have a really good relationship. And I said to him, you know, would you mind running the, this um, this uh, free T3 test? And, and, and both he and my, my uh, GP agreed, yeah, we'll, we'll run the test and see where you're at. So obviously they found it was low put me on a sort of experimental dose of, of T3 replacement combined with the T4 and man, did I feel better. 
within right. within about six weeks, I really noticed a shift in my energy levels. Um, a whole bunch of things improved, um, and I, and I do still suffer with with a bit of dry skin here and there, which might be provoked by you know again things like dairy and that. But yeah, it it, it is amazing that you can live for years with with hypothyroid symptoms and not really you know not really draw attention to them yeah it's uh, interesting it's not, it, it's not until you it's a very subtle and very slow um to progress condition uh in my experience I suppose i've only it's... had i've only had one adjustment to my t4 um thyroid hormone in in you know, what's that? I was diagnosed at 14. I'm now 39. So that's a good 25 odd, if not more years, if my math is right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's a very slow to progress condition, uh, but, it, but it can be ignored. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like, I sp- it's, a, it's a complex condition in itself, but I suppose it's not very well known. So like the symptoms of it aren't very well known, or that's the case for me anyway. So it's like, if you do yeah. get like dry skin or energy levels, you just sort of attribute that to something, you know, or, you know, maybe yeah. I've had a hard day at work or I've pushed myself yeah. too hard on the bike. You always come up with a, a reason for the way that you're feeling, you know, you can always That's justify right. it. But, um, and it can be, it can be overlooked, like I said, you know, you can live for years, but it can also be confused with, with hypothyroid. There are many, you know, it, you can Google a whole bunch of things and you'll get, you know, the human body I find can present with with a group of symptoms that are similar for a whole bunch of different conditions. But uh, it's not until you nail that that actual uh, you know the actual cause that you you feel better. And I, you know, I, as I said, I've had that thyroid hormone going through my body for years. Uh, the the T four replacement. But I just never felt fantastic. Not until I, I now have the combination of both. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, and and you know it's actually something I discovered as well. Uh, you know that there there are through diet um, in that you need a sufficient amount of glucose to to convert the T four to T three as well, which you know is another whole interesting topic in itself. Yeah, um, right. That sounds. That was going to be my next question for you. Like I'm just sort yep. of, as you're speaking, just going through my head. Like, bloody diabetes is hard enough on its own. Like, yeah. Uh, how do each of your conditions, the three that you've got, how do they yep. impact each other? Obviously, you've just mentioned now, glucose affects affects the P four P four. Like, yeah. wh- what other things do you have to sort of manage to to keep everything in balance? Well, there's the thing, you see, I mean, having hypothyroid, if you don't have sufficient amounts of T3 in your system, it can affect your insulin sensitivity. Uh, and, and, you know, again, I'm no, I'm no doctor. These are just things that I read for research because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably like many of us like, like yourself. I'm, I'm interested in finding out how the body works. But right. from what I read, you know, T3... Um, hormone production or, or, or having an availability of T3 affects your insulin sensitivity. So if that's out of whack, then your insulin sensitivity is out of whack and, and then you're taking more insulin than you need and destabilizing type 1, it can, it can all knock, knock itself all over the place. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds... <laughs> 
I don't know how you do it, mate. It's I think you're, yeah, it, you're doing really it's well. One of those things, you know. Some, someone says to you, "Type one," and 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 you know, I've never personally been said how how do you how do you possibly inject insulin? But I have seen that that pop up in social media every now and then. Yeah. Um, you know how how do you take insulin? Well, I don't I have, have a choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you lay down to this this thing, it's it's certainly gonna gonna consume your life, and 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 that's not not taking anything away from how much it already does like it does so the reality is it does take up a lot of our life but uh, yeah. you know you can you can I'm always a firm believer and you can also make the most out of it you can you can really you can really kick back at it well that's right that's- it's yeah it's it's almost like this sounds like a weird thing to say but it's almost a gift in itself like for example you and I wouldn't be connecting if we didn't have diabetes and like, yeah. you know, you, you speaking is just sort of inspiring me to, to, you know, to research more. And, you know, I've learned some things off you right now talking about diabetes that I wouldn't have known otherwise. So it's, yeah, it's, and, you've got to, and that's right. Vice versa. We all, we, we learn off each other and, and, you know, I was saying when I, when I, when I, it was through Sebastian uh, sharing, um, you know, your podcast and then, then I saw some of your social media and I was like, this legend's just like, like me. He wants to go out and challenge himself and, and do these different, you know, do different sports and, and really, you know, you can you can make the most out of it, I think, is the message that we're getting out there because, you know, the reality is when I was younger, I perhaps didn't. I was that, that guy who really went down a rabbit hole with denial and who really really came unstuck and went off the rails. I mean, there's probably a couple of times that, that I came very close to, to not being here. Um, you know, and that's, that's the message I want to get out there now is that, you know, particularly to the younger people, that you, you really can live a life with it. It's hard. It's bloody hard sometimes. But uh, you can still make it a, a very good life. You can. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, yeah, like I, when I was 15, I think it was, I was 13, 14, 15, during that period, uh, you mentioned denial. That sort of, I had a, a couple of years uh, where I had a bit of denial myself because it's like, you know, you know that age, you want to fit in, um, you yeah. want to be cool like all your other mates and yeah. yet you've still got to inject. And I remember one time, it's quite profound, like I'll never forget it. I just grabbed all my insulin, I was at school and threw it, just launched it down the corridor and I was like, you know, F this, um, you know, why I don't want to take this anymore. It, it differentiates me from my friends and I don't want to take it anymore. Yeah. But then a short period after that, I was like, look, you know what? I have to accept this. There's, there's no, currently no cure for this. Um, yeah. the, the best I can do is manage it and hope that I'm not going to get a complication. And, uh, so that's, that's since then, this is sort of, I've just adopted this positive outlook and, and sort of carried on with life. But if you don't mind, can, can we sort of drill into your period of denial? Like what sort of things yeah. did you go through? I think, you know, that's probably been one of the, one of the harder times in my life was, was that, that diagnosis, um, feeling very, you know, very isolated as many of us probably do. Um, feeling very different and, and you're going through a growth period where everyone already feels different anyway. You're already struggling to find as a teenager where you fit into the world, where what you're going to do with your life, who 
who you are, you know, your identity searching, and then you get smashed with this chronic condition that takes up so much of your mental health real estate that you're kind of like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? What, you know, and, and I really, I got caught up in, in just saying, well, I'm not, I don't have type one. I'm, I'm just going to go out with my mates anyway. I'm just going to drink, you know, a lot of alcohol with my mates and do what they're doing. And I came unstuck so many times and I put my life and welfare and a lot of the people around me, I put it in their hands. When you and, say, and, and, yeah, when you say you come unstuck, yeah, what, what, what are really some of those experiences? Oh, well, I can remember one time in particular where I probably had well over a whole bottle of vodka, you know, sitting around a campfire in the middle of nowhere um, I'm down south here in, in Western Australia with my, with my mate. And, you know, even now I cringe at the thought, but I, I passed out from having too much alcohol, not from, from a diabetes-related event, but I had no idea what my blood glucose was, no one around me. We're all 18-year-old you know, kids that had zero idea what was going on. If I had have been severely hypo, like it, it, it would have been a big deal. It would have been a really big problem. Yeah, because um, I suppose it's your mates would have just been like, oh, he's pissed, you know, he'll well, be they, right. They, they did initially, then they panicked and thought, hang on, what's going on? They threw me into the back of a ute and uh, drove me down to the, the hospital, which was, you know, a good half hour away. We were in Buckleton, but it was, it, it was a, a fairly fairly scary thing for, for other kids my age to be to be worried about. You know, there was, it, and and that wasn't the only time. You know, that there, there was times when I, I remember another time, particularly where again I'd been at a party with my mates, and uh, all went well that evening. But it was the next morning, and and you know, as as you, you you might know yourself, if you've had a few drinks, you really impair your body ability to respond to low blood glucose levels yeah, your, your liver just just doesn't work so you, you, your safety net of glu- uh, glycogen is it, just not released like it would be in a severe hypo um, at other times but I remember sitting at the breakfast table the next day not testing which was quite typical for me and taking my dose of insulin that I thought was right for a, a, a huge bowl of wheat bit and I barely managed to take the insulin and get up from the table and I remember going across to the kitchen and I'm managing to get out of my mouth I need help and my parents jumped up and grabbed me um, and I had a massive uh, hypoglycemic fit oh right and they are a next level scary event um, you know it's obviously they're they're one step away from from you know slipping into a coma again but uh you know, it was like being trapped in my body while it was convulsing and having a fit um, and, and, and watching my family panic around me. Um, you know, mum thankfully had liquid glucose on hand, which effectively saved my life. But, yeah, uh, right. you know, th- these are the things that I, that I think back to and it all comes back to that psychological state of being in denial and, and not, not wanting to accept that I had been diagnosed with with type one. Yeah, it's interesting, mate. Like just hearing you talk about that sort of brings back brings me back to a couple of events. Probably not as bad as you, but um, yeah. I mean, I've ended up in hospital a couple of times from nights out on on the town, 
And yeah. uh, my mates would say, we're going to the GH again because there used to be a pub where I am in Geelong called the GH, yeah. the Geelong Hotel. But yeah. my mates nicknamed it the Geelong Hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they'd be like, Darcy, are we going to the GH tonight? Because there'd be a couple of times. Um, never, never fitted or anything like that, which I'm very bloody fortunate for. But yeah, um, yeah I got close a couple of times, which is which is pretty scary. Um, yeah. And I think it's similar to you, mate. Like it's just you know not not sort of really owning it or not owning it, not sort of accepting yeah. this is what we've got, and and you know we need to take special care of ourselves because we do have this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It it really is. It really is a difficult. Uh, you know, life event for anyone to go through um, being diagnosed with anything that's a chronic lifelong condition, but then being in a situation where, you know, you don't, you just don't want that to be yours. Like I remember, you know, for a good period there, maybe five years uh, in my first, my first five years uh, having been diagnosed, I would inject in toilets. I wouldn't inject in public, and I would I would hide away, and I would I would con- I would conceal it. I, I just I didn't want people to know that that I had this this condition. Yeah. Um, and it was really sport for me. Sport really turned it all around, turned the, the whole ship around. It's a, it's um, a, it's really interesting. Another really interesting point. You keep raising all these interesting points, like, um, and I still think I am a little bit like this to this day. Like, I do have a. I'm on a pump now, which has taken a lot of the social sort of anxiety away from me. But I I ne- I've never liked injecting in public. Um, yeah. And my parents, well, my dad in particular, was always like, "Why? You know, who cares?" But it's like, well, you try it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have all those people sort of stare at you. I've actually had, I don't know yeah. if you've, it'd be interesting to see if you've sort of experienced anything like this, but I've actually had one lady, we're in a restaurant um, and one lady tell me, no, I, I don't want you to do that whilst I'm around. And I'm like, you know, I'm a diabetic. I'm not a, like a junkie or anything like that. She's like, yeah, no, no, I don't want you to be injecting near me. And it's like, well, I already feel pretty rubbish about the fact I've got a chronic yeah. disease and you've just gone and rubbed it more in my face. Have you sort of experienced anything like that? You know, I, I have had a a, um, a a guy once many, many years ago say to me in, in, in a toilet, you know, um, that it was completely unacceptable, thinking that I was actually, oh, from what I can only assume, he, he might have thought that I was injecting some kind of drugs, being a young guy. Um, again, I'd had a few drinks at the time. Um, and and you know at that time I just I don't think I was equipped with a with any any right response to that. I just kind of looked at him and you know in in the same sense you you know it would strike me as this feeling of shame. Like I, I actually I felt there was a lot of shame around diabetes for a while um, yeah. that I struggled with. So I think there's it's it's unfortunate. Like I I almost wish that they would like give type 1 and type 2 diabetes a bit of a different name. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't mind being called a type 2 diabetic. I have no issue with that at all. But a lot of people, yeah. as soon as they – and the media sort of probably got a bit of a role to play in this. But as soon as someone hears that you've got diabetes, they assume that, hey, look, this kid's eaten the wrong thing or he hasn't yeah. ever looked after himself or whatever. Yeah. And I think there's that sort of negative 
connotation that comes with diabetes. So I think that's maybe where it comes from as well. Yeah, I really, it is unfortunate that there isn't a clearer line, um, you know, perhaps again defined by the media um, in that they're two entirely separate diseases and it is unfortunate that we call type 2 and type 1 both diabetes because there, there is that stigma around it that, hey, we've caused this and, you know, what we've eaten um, causes, it's, 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 it's very unfair, but but in the same regard, I think, well, it kind of fuels my fire because that's why I really want to raise awareness for type 1 because I want people to understand that this is not a lifestyle choice. Um, you know, yeah. and, and I am in no way judging anyone in particular that, that, that lives with type 2 because they haven't chosen that either. Um, you know, it, there are there are there are different. It's a different response to to food altogether. But but type one is a, you know, it, it's very clear. It's an autoimmune condition that we in in no way have any kind of input or control over. We we we've we've just unfortunately ended up um, with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost sometimes, and I know there's you and I are probably quite biased because we live with the disease. But sometimes mm. I get blown away with the naivety of some people. And it's like, yeah. you know, we live in this 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 sort of digital age where information is everywhere. And yeah. the fact that some folks don't even know that, you know, diabetes is not always caused by lifestyle choices and all the rest of it it's yeah yeah but it is what it is it's totally cool but hey look that's that's why we're speaking now that's why we're raising awareness about diabetes and that's yeah i suppose it's it's just part of part and parcel of, of having it and raising awareness about it that's right yeah. yeah and and the more of us that do this the, the better i'm you know i always have a belief that even if you reach only a handful of people you're making a difference no matter how many it is yeah absolutely yeah, that's right. Like even if no one listens to this podcast except for one person and they can take something away from sort of our discussion today, hey, look, that's 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 the that's the that's a yeah, it's I, achieved something. I, I, you know, I, I, I went out on my bike and 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 rode, you know, a, a very long way because I I always said even if this gets out and changes the lives of a couple of young people living with type one, I would be more than more, I would feel more than accomplished that 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 was you know that was kind of always my objective all right well let's let's use that point as a bit of a segue into uh, your ride so can you tell yeah. us so this is an amazing feat you've ridden it's from Perth right you rode from Perth to yeah. Sydney um, yeah. can you tell us about where that idea came from or came from rather? yeah well it did start, um, you know, we, we had our, our, our little boy who's now, he's now four and a half. Um, and and oh, I'd, I'd never been one for YouTube, but uh, you'd probably know yourself, having young kids, uh, you don't get out as often. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'd kind of, I'd, I dabbled in racing for a few years, um, but I pulled away from it. I had a couple of crashes and things like that, but. Um, we'd obviously had our boy and I wasn't cycling anywhere near as much. So I was kind of getting into this trend of watching YouTube and living vicariously through other people's grand uh, feats. It's funny. <laughs> I, 
Are we related, mate? <laughs> oh, I tell you what. You're telling me a lot of the things you're telling me or you're mentioning and a lot of things that I'm doing. Like I've d- yeah. I've discovered this crazy YouTube habit since my son's been born. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It, 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 it catches you and then you're like, man, why do I watch these structured TV shows? And, uh, <laughs> exactly. It's just free media here. We, we went out and bought a TV oh, a couple of years ago. I reckon it's the remote's got dust on it. My wife and yeah. I are just, yeah. Sorry, mate. Continue YouTube, on. YouTube, YouTube is awesome. But yeah. look, I got into this this sort of pattern of watching it, and I, I started watching, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, other cyclists and what they were doing, and some of the crazy events that people were sort of taking part in. And um, these guys had, uh, I just caught on to it before it started, but the Indian Pacific Wheel Race. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but basically it was, and it's only officially ever run for one year, but they, um, it was a race that, um, that a couple of guys in Melbourne, uh, basically invented. And you, you put whatever you need to survive on your bike and you ride solo and unsupported from Perth to Sydney. Um, and they would do it via Melbourne. Um, and it was, it was, the fastest man wins. So you basically a uh, fastest man and woman. It was it was just everyone, anyone entered, and it was whoever got to Sydney first would win the race. Right. And I'm watching this thing, and it was like, if you get a chance, go go onto YouTube and look up Indian Pacific Wheel Race. Um, and these guys are just mad. Like that, I'm I'm thinking to myself, how the hell do they do this? But then it just caught me. It was like a it lit like a spark. I don't know what it was. And I, I turned to my partner, Cara, and I said, I reckon I could do that. And she kind of <laughs> looked at me and, and laughed and was like, what? I said, no, I'm serious. I reckon I could do that. And it, it, <laughs> it kind of snow, it just snowballed from there. I yeah. I then, I, I very instantly knew that my driver was to do it um, to raise awareness for type one because I, I just had this really stubborn belief that, you know, we're capable of doing whatever anyone else is capable of doing. You know, why couldn't I do what they were doing? And why couldn't I sort of set an example in the sense that, you know, I've always said from day one, anyone can do this. I am a father. I'm a full-time um, employee. I'm not a, I'm not a professional cyclist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who's gone out there with an ambition to do something and I'm saying, hey, you guys can do it as well. And and that was it. It just snowballed from there and it was a year in the making. Very intensive year. There was a lot of campaigning, a lot of, uh, you know, obviously I really wanted to raise funds for the, the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre here in Perth. Sure. Um, so I, I really wanted to help support their like amazing, uh, their amazing mission there, their, their goal and, and what they're doing is just incredible. I could talk about the family centre a lot. Um, I think I've, I've read, mate, did you raise around $19,000 for that? Yeah, just under twenty awesome. k. I started off, I think, with an initial goal of 5000 and I said, no, let's raise it to ten, and it just kept going. And then I thought, let's, let's aim for twenty, um, and And, you know, that the support from the community was incredible. People, I believe that people are there's predominantly just good people out there because uh, yeah. everyone got behind that. And 
I had zero idea that it was going to generate any public interest. Like I thought, you know, people are going to just think this guy's nuts and 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 not really, not really believe that I was going to do it. But I guess when I got three months uh, from about the three months uh, away mark, so I got to I think about January, um, and I set I set off on, in March, but it got to about January, and that's when I decided that I would do it because I was initially going to do it supported. Okay, and I was going to try and have a van follow me um, and 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 do it that way. But I just had this really underlying feeling that I wanted to go out there and challenge myself on my own with no other support, solo and unsupported. And I just I was afraid, you know, fear was definitely preventing me from stepping across that line. But uh, I don't know if you've heard of Mark Beaumont. Have you heard of Mark Beaumont? No, I haven't. No. Look up around the world in 80 days. He actually did it in 78, but he rode around the world. He's a Scotsman, fellow Scotsman like me, but he, he rode around the world in 78 days, which is unbelievable. So he's, right. he's absolutely destroyed the record, world record. Um, so he's right. the fastest man to circumnavigate the earth on a bike. But he actually agreed to um, to chat with me on, on, on Skype. So right. I... I was I was kind of starstruck. Mark is an absolute legend. You know, he's, he's very very well known in the cycling community. But uh, his little old me uh, hit him up for a telephone call, and he said, "Sure." Uh, you know, so he chatted about the outback, and he said, "Neil, I don't know you, and I don't know anything about type one diabetes, but as a cyclist, you can totally do this." You know, and he he said, "If you want to do it solo and unsupported, it is totally possible." Just set yourself a, a goal and a robust plan and go for it. And that's exactly what I did. So three months out from the actual leaving date, I, I just announced on social media, I'm going to do it solo and unsupported. Who's that's going to unreal. get behind <laughs> Did you, um, what, what sort of training was involved to, to do that sort of trip? Yeah. So look, it, it's interesting because you, you can never train for being on the bike 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, it's without exhausting yourself. I, I, for me, I wanted to build up a pretty solid base, but uh, you've really got to turn your body, you know, if you compare it to a vehicle, from a petrol to a diesel. So you want to run at a, at a, a lower heart rate at a fairly consistent pace um, for a long time. Sure. Okay. And for me, that just meant, um, you know, I, I obviously work full time and I have kids, so... I, I just extended my ride to work um, out to an hour. Um, so it was an hour one way to work and an hour home. So it was about probably, you know, two hours training per day at least five days a week. Okay. And what? And then as I, as I got closer to the, the, the sort of events, I then had to start doing some test runs. So I'd ride from... Uh, I'd ride from Perth down to Margaret River, for, for example, which is... 250, 300 Ks. Um, <laughs> Just a short ride. So, yeah, I did, I did a couple of those. My very first long ride was the Margaret River and I ended up with pretty mild sunstroke. So that was a big lesson in, in making sure I, you know, and I learned something on every one of these big rides that I did. Um, I had a weekend where I rode um, 200 Ks both Saturday and Sunday, so consecutively. So it was a, a 400 K weekend. Um, 
Gee. just to test how my body would respond. I went out and did a eight-hour ride with no food or water to see how I'd survive, which uh, eight no hours. Survived. How, how yeah. did you manage that with diabetes? Like you obviously didn't go it was, low. It's a journey in itself, and and I've probably left the nutrition topic alone um, because it's a very sort of you know it generates a lot of controversy yeah, and it can. Sure. But, um, I had a very successful, um, you know, sort of period there running on a low-carb diet. So I actually trained my body um, to run predominantly on fat, which meant I was on very low insulin doses at that time um, and I could run for very long periods of time without needing glucose because my body was burning fat. Sure. Um, and if you look at the glucose storage capacity in your body versus the fat storage, You've got about 400 calories versus 40,000, I believe. Yeah, sure. So you've got a lot, a lot of a lot of run time. I could I could go out and ride for, you know, an eight hour an eight hour trip, for example, and and not be desperate to replace that glucose. So I was burning body fat. Sure. Um, but with that, it does blunt your upper end, so you can't go and do a whole bunch. Of, I, I struggle to go and do a whole bunch of sprints. You could do it, say, one training session, but not back to back to back. Um, it, it would be it's 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 a very you've got to be very very knowledgeable and very experienced in how to manage that situation. Um, and it took a lot of preparation and understanding my body uh, but when I got to the point that I was ready to leave Perth um, I was fairly confident that I had that nutritional approach dialed in um, and, and that was that was what I followed all the way across you know I, I wasn't stopping at service stations and getting you know if you if you again if you watch the the Indian Pacific wheel race you know that the guys are stopping and loading up on bucket loads of you know coke and, and all the <laughs> right. stuff that service stations have I'm, you know, I'm riding along eating macadamia nuts and, and <laughs> avocados right. and, you know, I stopped at one servo in particular, which you might see on, on the Crossing for a Pause page, was um, I asked them for eight rashes of bacon and I wrapped it in foil and, and heavily salted and there off I went. <laughs> right. So, so, like, what's a typical, like, well, yeah, if you had a typical day when you were riding across, like, what were you sort of eating um, like from the moment you woke up to when you went down yep. to sleep overnight, what? Yeah, what got you through the day? Yeah, so basically, I'd wake up, I'd have uh, you know whatever was in town. Usually, if 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 I say town, when it got to the Nullarbor, things were very sketchy. So let's let, I'll separate being in a in a in a town like say Norseman was the last town before you you head out into the the Nullarbor stretch. And can we, uh, for the folks that are not from Australia, uh, can you talk through the Nullarbor? Can you explain what the Nullarbor is? Oh, it, 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 it can mean so many different things to so many people. But <laughs> on, a bike, on, a, on a bike at the ground level, it is a long, long expanse, um, very desolate, uh, very isolated, 200 k's between little uh you know shack type roadhouses it's there's no trees uh just long long flat straight roads very hot what's what sort of the some of the temperatures that you were experiencing 
Oh, I had a couple of days where it was about 40-odd degrees um, oh, three days in a row, um, and you, you, you've really got nowhere nowhere to hide um, because you're out on a bike in the, in, in the middle of nowhere. So it was intense, but, uh, you know, you kind of acclimatise out there as well because you've, you've got no, you know, the odd tree that you do find to, to to grab some shade under, you will get attacked by about twenty March flies at once. So it's not, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it, that's uh, mate. That sounds bloody tough. Like, how did you, with regard to your insulin, how did you sort of manage to keep that cool um, and sort of okay? Yeah. So that was a whole part of the sort of preparation as well because I knew that um, insulin denatures. Um, you know, think of it much like an egg white, really. As soon as you apply any heat to it, that's exactly what happens. It turns white. Yeah. Um, but it simply it, doesn't I, work. Nah. It, so, so I knew that the, the, one of the biggest challenges I would have was keeping my insulin um, preserved and, and, and in, in that right temperature range. But I found those little, um, I don't know if you've seen them, they're called a Frio wallet, F-R-I-O. I, I have seen those, yeah. They look great. Incre- incredible little piece of kit. Um, I, I went and bought one of those from from a um, from a local distributor and uh, learned how to kind of use it. So you basically submerge it in water, let it sit in there for a, a few minutes, and the beads soak up all the water. Um, then you kind of sit it outside of the water for another few minutes until it's almost touched dry, uh, and then you slide that into its little sleeve and you put the insulin inside it and it was like I'd had my insulin in the fridge. Right, like okay. It, just, it did not fluctuate. I could put that in my back pocket or on the back of my, my bag, on the back of my bike, and the wind passing through it's like an evaporative air conditioner type situation, and it was incredible, unbelievable bit of kit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I have seen them. Yeah, they look good. Yeah. So, so if ever they wanted to contact me and ask me to provide some kind of marketing campaign, <laughs> I could tell them, your, uh, your wallet helps me survive the Nullarbor. It kept it all the way across. It, um, it essentially kept my, my insulin uh, very cool. And did you, with your insulin, did you carry all your insulin that you used for the journey on you or did you sort of post some insulin to stops along the way? Yeah, so that you've just covered my, my next point there and I was going to tie that into the nutrition. Um, because I was following, obviously, the low-carb diet, I knew that uh, things like macadamias and, and I was using, like, beef jerky. We, we made a whole bunch of uh, homemade beef jerky. Okay. And I mailed that ahead to three different stops in the Nullarbor. So there was, uh, I believe, Mundrabilla Roadhouse, Nullarbor Roadhouse, and I think another one, uh, might have been Penong, okay, uh, somewhere out there. But but I mailed all of those ahead. So three big packages. I mailed extra glucose tablets. I mailed um, some other bits and bobs. And my insulin, I didn't mail because I was a little bit concerned that that would end up uh, missing or something would happen, keeping it temperature sensitive in in the mail. Okay. So my in laws were driving behind they actually were, were driving over to sydney to meet me but they were you know some days behind they they passed me um and then dropped that insulin uh to a location but i actually didn't need it because i probably would have gotten across with the insulin i had on board a couple of vials 
Sure. Um, so I just carried a, a couple of spare vials of each, plus the insulin I was actually actively using with me and had that backup uh, come across with, with my in-laws as well. When you were uh, on the journey, were you using a pump or using injections? Uh, injections, yeah. Okay. Because that was another consideration I made because I, I have used the pump on and off over, over the years. Um, I was concerned about the pump uh, being out in the sort of, you know, in my pocket or, or anywhere that wasn't inside this insulin wallet um, because at the end of the day, I would have rather had it too cool than had it too hot. Yeah, it got sure. too hot in any way. Um, I really would have would have come unstuck out there because, uh, you know, 200K stretches without any, any help, you know, it's, it's quite a risk and, and when you, you know, Particularly, I think about times like the 90-mile straight. Um, that is the most horrendous piece of road I've ever been on in my life on a bike. <laughs> Why is that? I felt like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the sign, the 90-mile straight, Australia's longest, uh, the, the longest, straightest road in the world or whatever. It's, it's a tourist sign. I haven't seen it, no. Yeah. If you Google it online, 90 miles straight, it will come up with this, you know, very well taken photos of all these people taking selfies there and I got to the sign and it was this heavily vandalised looking sign that I could barely read under dark clouds and I just had this bad feeling um, and I, the, probably about maybe a K after I passed the sign I dropped out of service so I had no, no phone service and the headwind uh, that I had for pretty well 19 out of the 20 days really gathered steam out there. And I I literally, by the time I left that 90-mile straight, eight hours later, um, I'd blown both my knees out. Right. Um, riding into the headwind. It was it was a really bad day on the bike. I, I had, you know, gathering pain in one knee because the wind was coming from a cross sort of headwind direction then the wind switched to the other sort of cross headwind direction and blew out my other knee um and that was nearly my campaign over it was uh it was a it was a tough day on the bike i got to um what's called cockle biddy uh which is the the roadhouse um the roadhouse i was getting the heading for that day okay and i remember getting there two hours late completely destroyed the headwind is, is not like a headwind that you get in a in a city where you kind of get these gusts and it goes away. It's like someone's turned a fan on high and it sits there for the entire 10, 12 hours of your day. The Nullarbor is a notoriously windy stretch of road, but it was on several occasions nearly broke me. Yeah, right. It, it sounds, you know, yeah, yeah, it sounds so hard got, work. I got to this roadhouse and this guy just said to me, you look destroyed. And I said, mate, I just need two dinners and to get to bed. My knees were massive. And uh, I woke up the next day and I still had very swollen knees and I thought, how am I going to go on? And that was where the mental challenge started to come in. But I rolled out. I must have got about 15 Ks into the day and the pain was just unbelievable. I couldn't even get my speed above, I think, 17, 18 Ks an hour. I started pushing into another headwind and I had 230-odd Ks to go. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I actually got to the point I pulled over on the side of the road and I sat down in the middle of absolutely nowhere 
and I thought, what a, you know, I'm out of options here. I, I cannot, I don't know how I'm going to go on. But I just kind of said to myself, how can I move on from this point? Not, not if or, or will. I just had to say how. And it's unbelievable when you have no outside influence or contact. You've got no phone to use, no one to ask for help or opinion. This idea just dropped into my head. I thought, why now are my knees blowing up? And they didn't blow up in that countless hours of training that I've done. So and I what, thought to myself, what do you think? Yeah, yeah what I, was it? It just dropped into my head. I thought, it's got to be my cadence. You know, how many pedal revolutions I'm doing, my knees just are not used to doing day after day after day, thousands of pedal revolutions. And I thought to myself, but I have to pedal. If I don't pedal, I'll stop. So what's the alternative? So did and you slow just, the cadence down? or Yeah, yeah I just, right. it just dropped and I went, I've got to slow my cadence down, which meant pushing it into the hardest gear um, and putting all of the load on my muscles rather than my joint. Yeah, sure. And would you believe within five kilometres, my speed was above 20k an hour. I was grinding very slowly and it was my quads were on fire. They were burning. But, you know, an hour turned into half a day. Half a day turned into a whole day. And, you know, I made the mandrabilla that day and I was still in a lot of pain. My knees were still swollen. But I made it there, and and I, I thought if I can, if I got past today, that was such a close call. You know, tomorrow's another day, and it was, and it just got better and better. And I look at my average cadence; it was it was like seventy something for the whole trip. It right. was not not you know most cyclists would know you ride ninety to one hundred and ten RPM. Yeah, my RPM, yeah. Was, you know, seventy something. So I. Apart from Lance and the copious amount of drugs he was taking, I think that was one yeah. of his key things was, was bringing yeah. the high, his cadence up. Yeah. And you know what? I've seen so many ultra-endurance cyclists blow knees out, and my advice to them is look at your cadence. If you train like a truck in, in I guess, high gear, um, I don't know whether high or low gear is the right description, but it's about slowing the cadence down and developing strength and power at at a, at a much lower cadence. And it literally saved my campaign. If I was ever going to do any any really long um, journey again, I would always train to be at a lower cadence because it's just yeah. protects the neck. It makes sense, doesn't it? It's, it's less spinning. It's, yeah. Um, and it, yeah. it, it absolutely saved my campaign. And it wasn't the first time I'd had to pull myself out of hot water out there. There were many, many challenges. Like the saddle sores were, were unbelievable, like open flesh wounds. Yeah, um, right. You know, I've never had to – every single day I was in pain. I was in a lot of pain and I had to micromanage. You know, I'd be moving millimetres on my saddle for the first five, ten Ks every day because it was just incredible pain um but you, you learn to adapt and it's survival out there it's, you know you you either you either survive or you or you or you don't that there's no choice there's no one to help you there's no there's no one else out there and that that was the beauty of it for me was was knowing now that when the going gets tough i can rely upon myself to get out of that situation 
It would be very confidence inspiring. That's for sure. Yeah, that's what it does. Yeah. I I I went out. I, I left her a very naive person, thinking I've done the training, I've done the research, I've prepared meticulously everything down to my bike. Everything I had done on my bike was researched. I had I had oval shaped chain rings, for example. I had, I've seen those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my tire pressure, for example, most cyclists ride with a very high tire pressure on a road bike. I had one puncture the entire four thousand kilometers because my tire pressure was seventy. Seventy. Yeah, right. Yeah. That is low. So I had twenty eight millimeter on the front and a thirty two millimeter on the rear. And I dropped the tire pressure right down, and it not only was very comfortable, but if you look at the Cycling Tips podcast on aerodynamity, it's also less rolling resistance, so it's actually more efficient to have a lower pressure tire than it is to have a high pressure. I've actually um, heard that. Um, like I do a bit of yeah. mountain biking, and a couple yeah. of my friends are engineers, and one day we started geeking out on low pressure is more efficient. And even though it seems counterintuitive, apparently it's so. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. 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 It, it really it really did work for me, you know. And, and, and like I said, I left first very naive thing and I had it all dialed in. I knew nothing. You know, I took a wrong turn on the first day that cost me an extra three hours and I had to sleep on a service station floor um, and that was, the, that was the reality check. I was like, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be one of the... One of the so hard, you know. That, that was the very first day, and I had another nineteen days of that. I thought, man, how this is going to be huge. But that was I got be... to Sydney, a very changed human being. Oh, it would be, yeah. It it'd change you so much, wouldn't it? It's the lessons yeah. that you've learnt, and lessons. I suppose a lot of it is a bit of a mental, not a bit. It's a large mental game. Um, a couple, it like is. I've got a couple of friends. Oh, one of my friends, he's a professional triathlete. We've had sort of a good couple of discussions. And I think I was talking to him about this, that he reckons it's like 20% physical, 80% mental. And I was like, what, yeah. what are you talking about? Like, you know, you spend so much of your time on the physical part. But he's like, yeah, man. But like, you know, it's it's all about, it's all in the mind. The mind is so strong. and it's, It is. It's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting. It, we're a lot stronger, I think. And everyone has. I think. I think everyone has that somewhere deep down. Is 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 that strength? And it's yeah. there if we call upon it. It's it's comforting for me to know that it's there if I need it. Yeah, and it's. I think it's as a quote, and I can't quite remember the exact words, but it's like when you're pushing yourself, or when you're on the limit, that's when you really get to know yourself. And it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like and that, that's, definitely, that's definitely one thing that happened for me and it happened day after day. It, it, I hit the limit so many times on so many days. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I could probably easily write, smash out a, a whole book on this if I wrote, you know, about every day-by-day experience. But, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing for me was getting to Sydney and saying, you know, I, I did that, but, Anyone with type one diabetes, I think, has the potential to do something like that. Yeah, if not, if not bigger, you know, I, it, it really for me that was the message I wanted to hit home. Absolutely, and like you mentioned, Sydney. What was that moment when you pulled it? Because you finished at the Sydney Opera House, yeah. 
Yeah. So what yeah. was that moment when you sort of pulled in there? I've seen a couple of photos of your your family and whatnot. Was it yeah. was it overwhelmingly sort of like emotional or was it or oh, what did it feel you, like? It was unbelievable. I mean, not seeing my family for, for twenty days was was massive, you know. There we had countless telephone conversations but rolling up to, to that that Sydney Opera House and it was like tunnel vision. I could own, I could only see them. Um, and if you look on, on the, the crossing page, there actually is a live video that's quite a long one of the day I arrived there. But it, it even that moment that was captured on video doesn't capture the, the full emotion. Like I was, I was so overwhelmed because I thought about that moment in my head for, for weeks, you know, the, 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 the three weeks prior. It was, it was, I thought about it so many times. I mean, if you think about being on the bike for an hour and how many times, you know, if you don't have music or anything, how many things that you think about, multiply that by 12 and then multiply that by 20. And that was me for for that entire journey. I just thought about everything in my life and and so much much of that was my family. And and then seeing them was just, it, 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 it was so incredibly overwhelming. You know, it was it, it was just a huge, huge moment. I'll never forget. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know what it's like to to not see the family for a couple of days, and um, yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. Yeah. And 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 I I realised in in three weeks how much you can miss out on. You know. Oh it, yeah. It, yeah. The kids go through so many changes day by day, but yeah. Uh, you know, I, I rode probably. I was out there. You know, it was it was across Easter, for example. They were celebrating Easter, and, and you know that there was me out at. Uh, I think at that point I was just coming through Eucla, which was uh, you know I just crossed into South Australia, and I, I remember I remember everyone was celebrating Easter at that point. But uh, you know, it was just a massive moment to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And it was huge for them because they it's a lot of sacrifice. You know, your family really. These, they, that's the thing about these these big events is that you often see the individuals who do them, but uh, it really is the their families are the backbone of what gets them there. My family had to sacrifice a, a heck of a lot, you know, the training and 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 the absence and and all of the ups and downs that went with it. Yeah, absolutely, um, mate. Like you know, yeah, like um, when I was at uni, I I, I was cycling a, a bit. And, um, like I would hardly see my girlfriend, well, now my wife would sort yeah. of not complain, but you know, I was, you know, yeah. a long training ride, you know, you're away for six, six, seven, sometimes eight hours, you're away for the whole day. And, That's um, it. and that, that, you know, when we're at uni, that was okay. You know, like there was, yeah. um, there's just a couple of us, oh, sorry, it's just yeah. you're the couple yourself and, and your partner, but now you've got a family, you know, you you, 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 when you're working full time, you don't get to see them a lot as it is, but to then go training on top of that, yeah, that would have been tough. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It, it was it, it's such a big sacrifice, and that that's why you know it, it it's just not a practical thing to do every day with a family. Like uh, yeah. you know, there's it, there's so much goes into it. And it was a, it was a massive year in my life that I worked. I worked. It, you know, we all of us. Everyone in my team and, and my family and yeah, everyone that supported that worked very, very hard for an entire year. Um, 
you know, to, to get me to the start line. That, 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 that's the reality. And it's, it's such a huge thing that for the time I got to Sydney, the 20 days, sure, it was super tough, but I was celebrating the entire process. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and, and the fact that we blew the fundraising out of the, out of the water, you know, it was initially a, a fundraising target, I thought, of a, a casual $5,000, and that, that seemed like a huge deal for me to be able to contribute. Um, and, and to, to have hit nearly 20,000, you know, it was, it was a, a, something I just could be more grateful for. No, mate, you've, um, you've done really well. Like, I think you've, yeah, you're an amazing individual. Um, and, uh, like anyone that sort of does a, a huge event like that and raising money and awareness, um, for sort of anything like type one diabetes in this case is, uh, you're a remarkable human being. So good work, mate. Um, mate. Thank you. You know, I, I honestly do believe that that there's there's this capacity and this potential in, in all of us. We, you know, yeah, it, it's not. That's always something I wanted to, to to sort of do was to demonstrate that we're all capable of this. Yeah, no, I I definitely subscribe to that uh, sort of thinking as well. All right, mate. Yeah. So. Another sort of topic that I wouldn't mind, another sort of athletic topic that I wouldn't mind talking about is your Everesting um, goal or something that you're working towards uh, now. Um, yeah. Can, can you tell us uh, what is Everesting and, and okay. the reason for uh, accomplishing or t- trying to accomplish the Everesting goal? All right. Well, I'll probably touch on the – I'll probably touch on the – the why, because the why for that was a little bit different to the why for um, for the crossing. Yeah, go for it. Um, so far, and, and it, you'll be able to pick it up from social media, but not a lot of the sort of in-depth. Um, but five weeks after I got back from Sydney, I actually crashed my bike in, 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 in Perth, so when I was home. I think I've I read today when I was finalising my research uh, yeah. For this session tonight, I've yeah. I mean, you're obviously going to talk about it, but you this is mm-hmm. this this is this event or crash that almost took your life, right? Yeah. So I I essentially came back, and a lot of us suffer from these sort of post event blues, um, and and it's particularly something like what what had happened. I got back and I thought, what now? You know, and I was caught in a very I was caught in a, a, quite of a difficult place at the time, but uh, I was struggling to really focus. And, you know, all of that aside, I basically got my bike back from Sydney that, that very weekend and I just rebuilt it and, and headed out the door to work. And I just was not paying attention. I was, I was too busy looking at all the sensors on my bike not working and trying to line everything up. And I've just ridden out of my house and onto the main road looking down the whole time and ridden about maybe 50 or 100 metres and I hear this, hey, look out, buddy. And I kind of looked up and I didn't even get time to look up and I've, I've ridden at 30k an hour into the back of a uh, roadworking trailer. Right. And unfortunately for me, landed and become impaled on a pole, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm probably more comfortable talking about now than I have it in, in you know, probably a few months ago because I've, I've suffered a lot through that incident. But essentially, I've, I've cut a lot of sort of major blood vessels and narrowly missed my femoral artery, but, but nearly bled out at the scene. Um, I was 
very, very lucky to survive. Uh, you know, a lot of doctors kind of say it was kind of a miracle because I lost at least two litres of blood. Um, you know, but I, I, I did feel my body kind of fading in that time and I thought this is it. You know, I, I said to the, 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 the road worker who, who saved my life, you know, can you can you please, you know, tell my, my family I'm sorry and, and that I love them. And, I, you know, even now I find it still t- tough to recount that. But yeah. It's important yeah. in the story because it yeah. taught me that life wasn't all about type one diabetes. Because in that moment, I, you know, I remember thinking, all this time, I've, I've worried about these 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 other sort of threats to my health, and and here it is, it's come to this. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Much- it's interesting, mate. Like I've always sort of thought, like it's not like I have a premonition or anything like that, but. I've always thought that diabetes is not going to kill me. Like it's it's going to be something else. Like yeah. it's going to be blasting down a hill on my mountain bike or something like that. It's it's kind of a weird you know, a, weird thing. Yeah, it was a huge wake up for me. It mm. was a huge. It was a it was the darkest period I think I've got ever gone through because, um, you know, they say my fitness saved my life, so my heart was so. Um, resilient because of the the three weeks in the Nullarbor and how low my resting heart rate was, that I didn't go into cardiac arrest when most people would. Okay. So, but unbelievable, um, you know that that they had told the ambulance officers that apparently told the the attendee the attending police that I wouldn't make it to the hospital, but I did. Okay. So I made the sort of ten minute journey around the corner, and it was bag after bag, blood transfusion. I just felt my body coming back. Um, they then rushed me to Royal Perth Hospital who uh, took me straight in for an emergency surgery um, and I had a couple of surgeries but, you know, I, I woke up after that first surgery to see my partner Cara standing over me and thought, I, I cannot believe I've made it. Yeah. You know, that, 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 was, that was pretty well. I had no feeling in my body. I only had my vision left um, on the roadside to... To making it out of that situation, and you know, yeah, you know, getting past that was huge because it was months and months of physical uh, rehabilitation, but also the mental damage that it did. Um, I, I still, to this day, struggle uh, a little bit with PTSD. Yeah, um, but it was a massive challenge initially. Um, you know, I got over that, but it got to the point I think six months after the accident where I really thought, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd fought tooth and nail to get back on back on two feet um, because I actually severed my femoral nerves. So that's the nerve that serves both legs. Okay. So I don't have any feeling in the top half of my right leg anymore. Right. Um, yeah, I have a scar from hip to hip, so it's, it's right across my, my lower abdomen. Okay. So I literally cut that whole area open, um, but I I can't feel my leg, and I I got six months down the track, and I was in this really bad place. And like I said, back when I was twenty one, and I was suffering denial from type one, it was sport that pulled me out of that. It was having a focus and a goal, and I've always kind of thought to myself, Everesting had always kind of caught my sort of I and, and it was another big bucket list item that I always wanted to do and I thought 
you know what, I might not have the same kind of feeling in my leg. Who knows how what my physical capacity is? Do I still have that ability? There's only one way to try, and it's not by looking at other people's experiences. It was by giving it a crack myself, and I thought, let's do it. So I set the wheels in motion and uh, started training again, and it, and it lifted me out of that hole. Not all the way out, and I still, like I said to this day, 100% hand on heart, I'm still overcoming it. I still struggle with a PTSD, but it, it dug me out of where I was on the couch yeah, and, and sure. really buried in depression and yep. struggling mentally. Um, it's amazing what exercise can do. Like it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I, I haven't sort of had any depression or anxiety or anything like that. I'm probably, yeah. I've probably got a bit of OCD from having diabetes and <laughs> making sure, you know, my level's yeah. always in range or whatever. Yeah. Maybe I've got a bit of anxiety from that, but um, I've been pretty lucky. But exercise is like I know when I get stressed, you know, we've got a lot on at work or whatever. Like exercise is yeah. so cathartic and it's so like it just sort of takes the edge off everything. So I can totally relate when you say yeah. that it sort of helps you during that period. It, it probably mentally was far better for me than the physical. And, and you know, I, I, I understood through that that, you know, it, it physically, I. You know, I will never be the same as I was before. I, I can't say that it's damaged my, my ability on the bike, but physically it's changed my body. I've obviously I've lost a lot of lymphatic function now, so my legs gather a lot of lymph uh, fluid, for example, and it won't drain out the same. My healing slowed down even more than it would be with diet with diabetes. Okay. Um, so there's there's some aspects to my health that I've but I've accepted those. Um, you know, even the Everesting itself, and I'll come to that now in that basically Everesting is find a hill anywhere and the concept is, is, is relatively simple. Find a hill, ride up that hill and back down in a single ride. So without turning your bike computer off, you have to do it in a single ride is ride the total ascending metres equivalent to Mount Everest. So 8,848 8, metres you have to reach that elevation point in a single ride right? on one hill. So it's repeat that hill, repeat, repeat, repeat until you get to it. Right. So um, what's like in Perth is there, because you guys don't have too many no, huge hills over no, there, do you? 248 metres is, is our local uh, hill, one of the biggest hills in Perth here. Right. Um, and I, I had to equate that I had to ride that. 40 times to to get that that ascending total so that was going to take me somewhere in the vicinity of i think anywhere from 16 to 20 plus hours it was going to be a long day um but you know i was focused on the task i started off with one hill repeat in training and i just gradually built up to to uh, about 10, um, and I knew that that was a, a, a solid enough grounding in terms of fitness to do 40 in a day. Um, you know, I'd structured my training pretty well, but, you know, the, the unfortunate side of it is on the day it didn't work out, um, and that came down to potentially my body not having been fully over the accident. Um, you know, it mentally pulled me out of the hole, and my it helped me so much, and I'm so grateful for the experience and being able to raise funds for, for Insulin for Life because that was a huge driver for me. 
um, was to really draw the spotlight towards what those guys do in 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 providing that that vital insulin and supplies for for these developing countries. Yeah, can we can um, we sort of drill into insulin for life global? Can and talk yeah. to us about that. Yeah. So look, when I started the Everesting campaign, I decided that I really wanted to give something to these people that weren't as fortunate as us. And when you look at the tragic situation that's happening in, in some of these developing countries, it's not a case of having um, anywhere near the level of, of tech or, or, or supplies that we do to manage our fight one. These people die. It's, it's quite simple. They're, 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 the government can't afford the, the price of in, global price of insulin. They certainly don't have access. And type 1 is almost certainly a death sentence to, to many of these thousands and thousands of people worldwide over 78 countries i think yeah right um, so you know i i i'd seen insulin for life in the media before social media and i just sent them an email and i said i want to do this um this everesting um challenge and i want to dedicate the fundraising to insulin for life and they came right back to me uh we had several you know long conversations over months and um, yeah, we we tried to do everything to put that on the map, um, and I and I still do want to want to um, advocate for their cause because it's it's really important. Like I, I really want to change the lives of people who don't have what I believe is a basic human right. Oh, absolutely! It's, I mean, we were talking about it before, weren't we? Like before in the conversation before we hit record, but. The price yeah. of insulin and the because of the prohibitive price of insulin in some case yeah. in some countries in the world, like it's just truly devastating that people are like they're either rationing their insulin um, yeah. or they simply don't have access to insulin at all, like you're talking about. And it's yeah, it's, it's crazy. horrendous to think about. You know, I've thought about the times that that you know I've gone to the pharmacy and they haven't had the particular strips for my testing device or something like that, I think to myself, how how ridiculous is it now? Because when I, when I look at some of these countries that it's just not an option to, to have insulin or if it is getting, if they do get any healthcare, some of them have to walk for an entire day to get to a health clinic, like walk. And, you know, it's unbelievable what they have to go through. Yeah. Um, you know, and the sad story for many of them is they die far, far earlier than, than anyone. No one deserves that. That's it, right. It, it appalls me. It puts, it puts a rocket under my under my, my butt. I, I just, it really, I, I, I cannot say how important it is that, that, that we as, how can we allow this to happen in this day and age? It's just appalling. It's, it's I mean, we could potentially talk at great length <laughs> about yeah. some of these issues. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm opening a it can is. of worms. It's a whole separate podcast yeah. episode. In it, itself, it is. Mate, if you ever want to talk about it in the future, I, uh, mate, I think there's, there's definitely another. There's at least another two or three podcast episodes with you. But what I was going <laughs> to say is, I mean, I'm opening the can of worms on controversy here. But yeah. the amount of money that we spend on defence and and all these yeah. other things, like yeah, this in this sort of consumerist lives that we live, yeah, and yet. People in developing countries can't even 
get access to insulin. Right. Like, and to, to make it very clear for, for, for folks, like insulin is not a drug that assists someone or, or takes the pain away no. or anything like no. that. If a diabetic, a type 1 diabetic does not have access to insulin, they die and they die they within die. days. Like it's Yeah, and it's yeah. very horrible. It's not it I would not wish that upon anyone. It is it is a tragedy. It yeah. is, it really is a crisis point tragedy and yeah, it, yeah, we need to we need to do more because it happens in everyday life and, and it does make me make me see that in a developed society how much we really do take for granted because these things just aren't an option for other countries yeah it's it's crazy i think we're gonna have to do another uh, another pod potty episode on that mate <laughs> mate we will anytime it's anytime. interesting um like like we were talking about before like the price of insulin in america um is astronomical and it got me like there was an article that I was reading just the other day about these guys or this organization called the Open Insulin Project. I think it's openinsulin.org. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're trying to they're, they're trying to like essentially develop insulin and show that it's not actually that expensive to produce insulin. Um, no. And so they can go back to because apparently like I need to look into it a bit more because I wouldn't actually mind doing an episode on it. But apparently yeah. there's three big companies that produce yeah. insulin, and they essentially yeah. have a monopoly on the market. Um, they do. So what these guys, this Open Insulin Project, is trying to come out and say, hey, look, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. We've been able to produce insulin a lot cheaper than what you guys can. Why? And that's it. It's not a complex, well, it is a complex process, but it's actually, it's more about protecting the, the investment. That, so the patent and the government red tape is quite expensive. It's an expensive process for them as the as the producers to go through in order to pass all the regulations in, in, in putting the insulin on the shelf. They want that return on investment. So they have these patents preventing biosimilars being produced and entering the market and taking away their their particular you know, it's just yeah. Like I'm no politician, but it gets very political and very, very messy and dirty. And they they have a responsibility to yeah. do something about it. But it's twofold. It's not just it's not just the producers. It's also the government. They need to do something about it, but they won't. I don't know yeah. the full ins and outs, but they're not doing enough because people are dying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I don't know how some people sleep at night. I mean knowing that this these costs are prohibitive and they know that like yeah, yeah people are dying because they don't get access to they this just must emotionally detached from the situation I yeah think living yeah. with type one we, we have skin in this game and it really uh, I, 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 I simply couldn't detach from it it's, the reality is far too blinding it's, it's, it's appalling what happens absolutely. All right, let's let's maybe come back to that in, a, in another episode at some point. Yeah, <laughs> it's sure. Hugely sure. interesting. I actually started talking a little bit about it with Eric Tozer um, yeah. about it, but we didn't go into it too much. But um, yeah, it was interesting talking to him about it because he uh, he's actually in America and um, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, we'll come back to that.
All righty, mate. Sure. I'm just conscious of time. I know we've been rolling yeah. for about an hour and a half now. Just a couple yeah. of questions to sort of finish off. Um, yeah. I know we've largely covered this. Or we've we've touched. We've definitely touched on it throughout our conversation. But I always sort of like to get a bit of insight from from the guests about their advice to diabetics. So, if you were to run into a newly diagnosed diabetic in the street, what uh, what sort of well, what advice would you give to them about life with diabetes? Look, you know, I, that's one of the biggest drivers for me now and, and the advice I, I would I would give them is you can, you know, don't believe what, what, what you might uh, hear. You can do anything. You really can do anything. It really anything is possible and usually the limitations are our own. Um, you know, particularly young people with type one, I just really want them to know that you can experience life, every every aspect of life. Um, you know, you might have to be a little bit more careful or take a few more things into consideration. Obviously, type one's a big deal, but uh, you can still live life. That that's the that's the key element. Absolutely, I think that's great advice, mate. I um I almost wish that back twenty odd years ago or so, I'd um. Not that, not that time would have this, but you could have come into the hospital and told me those words because Mate, when I, I got... I wish I had the same person telling me that myself. Because <laughs> you know, one piece of advice I would have benefited, benefited from back then. Yeah. I mean, I remember back when I got diagnosed and I was in hospital for a week. Like, it's it's a really sort of tough period of time because you just don't know yeah. what's in store and you... I mean, I didn't run into another diabetic for, you know, a couple of months. We ended up having yeah. a family friend that uh, dad told me about. And, um, yeah, it's – but to hear those words, you can do anything. I mean, that's hugely powerful for someone that's just been given a, a diagnosis for a disease they're going to have for the rest of their life. And that's it. You know, for me, it needed to be an action – louder than my words too and that, that's really what drove me to get on the bike and do what I did because I want people to be left with that I guess real life example that that it is possible that, that I'm no you know I'm not a Lance Armstrong and that uh, you know I'm an everyday I'm an everyday human and, and, and that type one or not it, it's, it's totally possible yeah absolutely uh, they're really inspiring sort of words um, yeah Absolutely. All righty, mate. Well, um, we might finish up there. Yeah. I'll, um, yeah. Thank you very much for taking oh, mate, time out of your, your uh, evening to have a bit of a chat to us. Thank you for the opportunity. I've got my son in here jumping around and uh, probably telling me that uh, it's definitely dinner time. <laughs> well, apologize to him for, for us, for taking no, his dad away. No, not at all, mate. We really appreciate the opportunity and, yeah, feel like I've, I've uh, met a great new mate as well. It's, uh, yeah, no worries, mate. It's really been a pleasure. We'll actually, we'll potentially have to catch up one day and go for a ride together. Definitely, mate. Yeah. Absolutely.